Hi. If you follow Queer Serial on Instagram, you've probably been seeing my many posts about the gay sex panic in 1955 Boise and my new eight-episode limited series about it on Patreon. Since so many of you have recently subscribed, thank you so much, I thought I should share the first episode with listeners of the original Serial podcast. So here it is. You can listen to the full limited series and all my bonus episodes and queer history deep dives at patreon.com slash queer serial. It's only $3 a month to binge as much as you want, and I only charge when there's new content that month. There's a link in the episode notes for you. Hope you enjoy. Hey friends, before we get started, you should know Infamous Crimes episodes contain some sensitive sexual content, including some mentions of true stories involving pederasty and molestation. These moments are brief, but thought you should know in advance. Boise, Idaho. Population 50,000. The state capital. is usually thought of as a boisterous, rollicking he-man's town and home of the rugged westerner, Time Magazine writes in 1955. In the downtown saloons of the city, a faint echo of Boise's rip-snorting frontier days can still be heard, but its quiet residential areas and 70 churches give the city an appearance of immaculate respectability. Most 1950s Boiseans would probably agree with that description. They're proud of their heritage, built on that cowboy mentality and reverence for their faith. It's an everyone-knows-everyone kind of town. Every day is routine. Parents send their kids off to school every morning. Diners like the Howdy Partner prep for the same lunch rush every day. Another play is going up in the Little Theater at the Brownstone Boise Hotel. Families book their tickets for the weekend show. Every day, the nine-to-five men in suits and ties head to the Capitol building. Buck Jones walks among them, heading a couple blocks southwest down the tree-lined street to City Hall, where Buck serves as a councilman. His wife runs the bookshop, also downtown, and their son Frank is headed to West Point Military Academy. From her bookstore window, Mrs. Jones waves hello to familiar passers-by, like June Schmitz on her way to work at the club Les Bois, the French spelling of Boise. That's about as risque as Boise gets. There are no red light districts or even things like peep shows in this town. Vice doesn't really land on their radar because most folks assume Vice doesn't exist in their wholesome little town. It's unlikely that many people in 1950s Boise are reading things like the Kinsey reports, but if one were to do the Kinsey math with the town's population of 50,000, Boiseans would find that about 5,000 homosexuals must live among their cookie-cutter houses, and some of them are likely closeted, dutiful spouses. But the townspeople have absolutely no interest in studying this information. In fact, they'd rather look the other way completely, almost willfully unconscious to the existence of such people. Until familiar names hit the local headlines, revealing to Boiseans that this hidden world of homosexuals has actually been operating right in front of their eyes. Boy, it's noisy out in Boise, Idaho. They come down from Butte, Montana. They come up from Santa Ana. They come all the way from San Antonio. 
They come in from Oklahoma riding on a pedal pony just to join that noisy boise rodeo. Idaho, 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 how they'll ever get in quiet, I don't know. Every day's a celebration, it's a steady occupation, being noisy out in Boise, Idaho. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is Infamous Crimes, Episode 1, Crush the Monster of Boise. Halloween, 1955. Ralph Cooper, a shoe repairman, answers his door, not to trick-or-treaters, but to the deputy sheriff. He asks Cooper to come with him downtown. At the station, police tell him they have three statements accusing him of homosexual activity with minors. He's never heard of two of these minors, but the third one, Lee Gibson, he knows that name. Cooper is booked and put in a cell, and in comes prosecuting attorney Blaine Evans, along with Chief of Police James Brandon and Sheriff Doc House. The three of them ask Cooper where he was on certain dates. They ask all about all sorts of open murder cases. Cooper has alibis, but they keep pressing, so he requests a lie detector test. The three of them give up on pinning extra charges to him, but they ask him to sign a confession, which he considers because the accusation from Lee Gibson is true. Prosecuting attorney Evans and the officers tell Cooper he'll get five to seven years at the most. The prosecutor says Cooper can get off from even serving that time and get released to a psychiatrist for treatment for his interest in boys if he signs this. So... Cooper signs the statement. The following evening, November 1st, 1955, the U.S. joins the Vietnam War, which consumed most of the chatter between Boiseans all day. The Idaho Evening Statesman comes off the press with another announcement, this one possibly even more shocking. Boiseans held on morals count. Homosexuals have been caught before, but this is different. The Statesman writes... Three Boise men were arrested last night for committing sex acts on teenage boys. And Emery Bess, Ada County Probation Officer, said that the arrests represent a start of an investigation that has only scratched the surface. Probation Officer Emery Bess explains to the paper that several adults and about a hundred boys are involved. Arrests were made as a result of investigation by private investigator Howard Dice, the paper reports, at the request of the client. The townspeople are absolutely floored. How did these men find these hundred boys? Who are these boys? If it only scratched the surface, how deep does it go? What tipped off a probation officer to start this investigation? And most curiously, who is the client who hired the private investigator, Howard Dice? The next morning, the town wakes to some answers and even more questions. Wednesday, November 2nd, 1955. Three Boise men admit sex charges. The Idaho Daily Statesman hits every doorstep. Over breakfast, concerned parents take in every detail. Charged with lewd and lascivious conduct with minor children under the age of 16 are Charles Brokaw, 29, a Freightline dock worker, and Ralph Cooper, 33, a local shoe store employee. The third is Vernon H. Benny Castle, 51, local clothing store clerk. 
charged with infamous crimes against nature. The report goes on to explain Ada County prosecuting attorney Blaine Evans now has tape-recorded confessions from all three men. Everyone goes about their day, but it's all anyone can talk about. The storefronts and housewives and every break room is abuzz with gossip. What did the men actually do? Lewd and lascivious conduct, infamous crimes against nature. What is the difference between those charges? And they never said who the client was. And where are the police in all of this widespread investigation? Are they part of it? How is the prosecuting attorney involved, but not the police detectives? They have a private detective? It's a citywide game of telephone as people begin asking each other these questions and embellishing details and adding names. A large organization of secret perverts all over town whispering in the ears of our children. The story is not just salacious, but it's dangerous to us personally. All day long, the phones are ringing constantly at the police station, the statesman newspaper offices, and Boise High School with concerned mothers. They all want police action. At the Howdy Partner, a local drive-in diner, Al Travelstead follows the story and overhears the gossiping. By evening, his diner is busy with drive-in customers parked around the building, ordering burgers and watching the girls who dance in the rooftop floor show lit by floodlights beside the 25-foot-tall Howdy Partner sign, in case you forgot it's the 1950s. The Idaho Pioneer Statewide once wrote about the girls in the diner's rooftop performances. This show is gaining publicity far and near. Al Travelstead is indeed a genial host, a handsome, hearty individual who has an endearing habit of calling a person by his name, whether he knows it or not. Travelstead's diner is a much-loved establishment of Boise. The Travelsteads also own a dance studio in town, the Travelstead School of Dance. With a wife and two kids at home, Al also can't stop wondering throughout his shift at the diner today how deep this investigation will go, because he has a lot to lose. Where were the investigators looking, he wonders. A shoe repairman, Cooper. A clothing store clerk, Castle. A freight line worker, Brokaw. They could be looking in Julia Davis Park. There's plenty of cruising in the tea rooms, and sometimes you can find a hustler and get a blowjob for anywhere from a nickel to a few bucks. Young boys, mostly high school boys, find it to be pretty reliable money. Maybe the investigators are watching the YMCA, the same goes on there, or the library bathrooms, or the bus station, or the bookstore. But Emery Bess isn't a plainclothes policeman hiding behind a two-way mirror in the park bathroom. He's a juvenile probation officer talking to the press as though he's in charge. Juveniles on probation must have reported these men then. But Bess is investigating with a private eye named Howard Dice, who was hired by a client. The client must be in charge of where Bess and Dice look then. Would the police hire a private detective? It's unlikely to be the police hiring a detective. They have their own, and they actually need to look more effective. 
especially the prosecuting attorney Blaine Evans, because citizens are looking to him and the police for action. To keep his job, Evans needs to push his narrative in the story of this investigation. And he finds his opportunity. The probation officer, Emery Best, comes to his boss with a tip about a prominent businessman. Best needs approval to move forward on investigating. The next morning, November 3rd, citizens wake to a call to action. Crush the monster, the Idaho statesman headline shouts. This paper usually underplays crime, but today is different. Disclosure that the evils of moral perversion prevail in Boise on an extensive scale must come as a distinct and intensely disagreeable shock to most Boiseans. It seems almost incredible that any such cancerous growth could have taken roots and developed in our midst. It's bad enough when three Boise men, overhauled and accused as criminal deviates, are reported to have confessed to violations involving ten teenage boys. But when the responsible office of the probate court announces that these arrests make only the start of an investigation that has only scratched the surface, the situation is one that causes general alarm and calls for immediate and systemic cauterization. The situation might have been dismissed with an expression of regret and a sigh of relief if only one could be quite sure that none other than these three men and these ten boys have been infected by the monstrous evil here. But the responsible court officer says that only the surface has been scratched and that partial evidence has been gathered showing that several other adults and about 100 boys are involved. So long as such possibility exists, there can be no rest. Involved in it are the roots of manifestation of juvenile delinquency quite beyond the ken of most welfare advancement agencies or interests. It's a challenge of greater danger than most of us could have thought possible here. It must, by all means, be met promptly and effectively. The operation as projected involves a task and a responsibility that's entirely too big and too sinister to be left alone to a private detective and an officer of the probate court until the whole sordid situation is completely cleared up and the premises thoroughly cleaned and disinfected the job is one in which the full strength of the country and city agencies should and must be enlisted that's what we demand and that's what we expect the town panics Phone lines fill again, to police, to the paper, to the schools, between mothers, between neighbors. It could be anyone, any number of men right in front of us. With all the paranoia and gossip and assumptions, it's hard to stop and analyze all the questions left on the page. Like, why is the paper believing every generalization by probation officer Emery Bess? Where did they get this number of ten boys when the original report only mentioned that it was just minor children, no specified number? And then Emery Bess said it was a hundred boys. Has the paper found more information that they didn't print yesterday? If so, why don't they just say who gave them the number 10? And still no mention of the client. Is the paper now linked to the investigation? Do they know the client? Do they know more than they're able to report? And is their panic justified for what they know? Other papers begin picking up the story, and the city follows every word.
Friday, November 4th, 1955. The Statesman Reports Castle, the clothing store clerk, appeared with his attorney, J. Charles Blanton. Blanton used to work for the prosecuting attorney until recently. Their office had prosecuted homosexuals before, but he's never seen it get so public. The involvement of minors brought the public scorn, though many, if not most people, assume pedophiles and homosexuals are one and the same. Castle entered no plea, the city reads. Brokaw, the freight line worker, requested a preliminary hearing set for November 10th. Cooper, the shoe repair man, pleaded guilty and had no lawyer. The paper describes Cooper as a tall, pockmarked man. He was arrested for playing strip poker with 15-year-old Lee Gibson. Cooper has a record, with the police and the FBI going back to when he was 13. Shoplifting, car theft, grand theft, first-degree burglary, and forgery. The court records describe Cooper and his case. Ralph Cooper, the defendant, has admitted the charge stated in the information in its entirety. Lewd conduct with a minor child made by Lee Gibson for a crime committed on July 1st, 1954. In addition to this sentence, he also admits a relationship with another minor named Redacted. The latter affair occurred in December of 1953. The defendant further admits that when he was 15 years of age, he was committed to the State Industrial School at St. Anthony, Idaho on a charge of burglary and there served a 13-month term. Shortly after his release from St. Anthony, he was returned to serve in an additional 18 months as a parole violator. In 1943, he was convicted of burglary in the state of Idaho and was sentenced to the Idaho State Penitentiary, where he served until 1945. In 1948, he was convicted of forgery again in Idaho and served a term at the Idaho State Penitentiary until 1950. In 1951, the defendant was convicted in the probate court of Ada County for contributing to the delinquency of minors. This offense had to do with liquor. However, Judge Jackson, as a condition of his release, required that the defendant stay away from young boys. With reference to out-of-state charges and convictions, the defendant relates that he was convicted of a felony in the state of California in 1941 and served a penitentiary sentence at San Quentin. The prosecuting attorney's office has also been informed that this defendant had sexual relations with other minor boys, aside from those he has admitted. One young man has informed us that while working at the shoe repair shop where Cooper was employed, the defendant had homosexual relations with him that he brought and provided liquor for himself and three other young boys, and that on one occasion the defendant took the said boys on a trip to Kuna Caves, during which trip they drank the liquor he had provided, and during which trip he committed homosexual acts on their persons involving the use of his mouth. The statement with reference to the Kuna Caves incident is corroborated by statements given to our office by other young men who supposedly also made the trip. In addition, the prosecuting attorney's office has signed written statements from other young men describing the homosexual activities of the defendant with respect to them. The defendant has stated that he desires psychiatric treatment and would like to discontinue homosexual activities. Although he denies certain of the charges made against him in the above referred to statements with reference to the two incidents first mentioned, he has been open and cooperative in providing this office with information. The reporter who will search through these court records a decade later, trying to piece together the first few days of Boise's sex panic, trying to understand how it all got so out of control, he'll find it curious that none of the statements by these boys is included in the file. No depositions by the accusers or the accused. And why was a crime committed on July 1st, 1954 and December of 53 suddenly being investigated over a year later in 55? What caused this roundup to begin on Halloween night? Judge Merlin Young says to Cooper in court, it appears that all your actions have been with teenage youths. 
No one speaks on Cooper's behalf. He pleads guilty, as prosecuting attorney Blaine Evans said he would get psychiatric help for his problem. The sheriff takes him back to the jail and says the most he'll get is seven years in a mental institution. While he's jailed, cops search Cooper's house without a warrant, taking every photograph. Family, friends, everyone. There are no photos of Lee Gibson or anyone Cooper has had sexual contact with, but they'll take all of his photographs, and he'll never see any of them again. Everywhere Judge Merlin Young goes in town, people are saying to him, I hope you really let them have it. Judge Young will later say it was a difficult atmosphere to work in with all that pressure. He'll admit he didn't even know much about homosexuality or the ways people are sometimes unjustly prosecuted, but sometimes justly prosecuted. He tries to study up. Almost a week later, Thursday, November 10th, Boiseans pick up the evening statesman. Morals case brings life term. Ralph Cooper was expecting mental health treatment. Judge Merlin Young returned to court and said, By the power vested in me, I sentence you to the penitentiary for the rest of your natural life. Cooper will be in a daze for two weeks. Cooper's court file notes, Prison warden L.E. Clapp told a reporter that Cooper must serve 10 years of the sentence before he can be considered for parole, and that doesn't mean he will be considered, Clapp said. He stressed that the State Board of Pardons has the power to establish the conditions, and that in Cooper's case, even if he would in some future time be paroled, it could only be to a state hospital and not to society. If Clapp believes Cooper needs psychiatric help, why deny him this and put him in prison for life? They needed to crush the monster. It won't be that easy. Cooper isn't the only man Lee Gibson has named. The next morning, Friday, November 11th, the statesman reiterates, Cooper draws life term in Idaho Penitentiary. They again mention that this conviction is the result of an investigation conducted by Howard Dice, owner of the Gem State Investigation Service, at the request of a client. With a guilty plea and a conviction on the books, soon the people who put this whole investigation into motion will get closer to their intended target. Probation officer Emery Bess is told he's off these cases. They're being sent to the moral squad at the police department. An employee at the police station stops by the Howdy Pardoner Diner. They tip off Al Travelstead as a warrant for his arrest. Travelstead rushes home, packs his suitcase, tells his family goodbye, and runs. Probation officer Emery Bess sits in his living room with the lights out watching out the window with a shotgun on his lap. His young son, Ron, walks in and asks what's wrong. Emery says to his son, there's a price on my head. A nice car pulls up out front. The headlights click off. Bess and his boy stand still, watching. The car sits for a few minutes and starts again and drives away. Emery Bess will be up all night. The investigation, as Bess said, has only scratched the surface, and now it's out of his hands. As the city searches for a satisfactory amount of justice to crush this thing, 
not just the townspeople, but the detectives and the prosecutors and the judges will now continually return to one of their very first questions. What do these men actually do? What is lewd and lascivious conduct? What is a crime against nature? These phrases seem quite broad and flexible. A town gripped by conformity in a nation just stewing in 1950s communist paranoia, Boiseans will deem their friends and family monsters until every last deviant is caught. Next week, a doctor arrives, the Fairyland Parade, and a rented house on 16th Street. When you think the noise is stopping, that's when things begin a popping out in noisy little Boise, Idaho. Boy, it's noisy out in Boise. Oh, it's noisy out in Boise, Idaho. What's going to happen? You can follow the story of the Boise Sex Panic right here for the next seven weeks. If you're listening to this on the Queer Serial free feed, you'll have to join my Patreon to hear the rest of the story. You can join us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash queer serial. There's a link in the episode notes. And you can get all sorts of bonus content over there. If you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear covered in future episodes on Patreon, send me a message. They can be simple topics for standalone stories or big events worthy of another little miniseries. Uh, Let me know what you want to hear. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening to the Infamous Crimes limited series. Resources for this series include John Jurassi's 1965 book, The Boys of Boise. It might be Jurassi? Jurassi? I'm not sure. We're going to go with Jurassi. Seth Randall's 2006 documentary, The Fall of 55, and Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America by John D'Amelio and Estelle B. Friedman. You can find more info about my resources at QueerSerial.com. If you'd like to learn even more about the Boise Sex Panic, check out Eric Marcus's interview on his podcast, Making Gay History, with Boise citizen Morris Foote. He tells his story about skipping town during the early days of the panic. There's a link to that in the episode notes as well. Music for the series is by Blue Dot Sessions. The opening tune is called It's Noisy Out in Boise, Idaho, performed in 1949 by a group called The King's Jesters. Can you believe that? The song at the Howdy Partner Diner was another 1949 song called Idaho Boogie by Freddie Mitchell and his orchestra. This show is entirely supported by subscribers on Patreon. Thank you so much. Special thanks to Courtney Tesh, Marissa Barber-Clayton, and Faye Camp. Thank you all so much. Back next week.